0: Hi everyone, welcome to Corporate Chat Podcast. Your hosts for today are Matis Grandchat and myself, Loïc Meunier. We both pursue a Bachelor of Commerce at McGill in Finance. Thank you to our sponsors, Deloitte,
1: Cementov Development, LTD, and Red Bull. Max Chen is Senior Vice President and Corporate Development Officer at Enbridge. He previously held various positions, such as Vice President Treasury and Enterprise Risk at Enbridge. And managing director of corporate finance at BMO, he has an MBA from Dalhousie University and a Bachelor's of Economics at University of Calgary. Without further ado, here's our conversation with Max Chan. So, hi, Max. How are you? Good. How are you guys doing?
0: I'm Good. great. I'm great. Uh, so let's kick off the interview and let's let's talk about your background. Uh, what yeah. made you choose to go into finance? So, uh,
2: I've always enjoyed the idea of money, especially as a kid. I didn't know much about it. And um, when I was in university as an undergrad, I didn't didn't really actually have much of a plan either to figure it out. So, I would probably say I fell a bit backwards into a, a career in finance through a summer internship at BMO um, right at the end of my undergrad. And it was at that internship, it was kind of my first taste of, uh, let's call it the real world, and really opened my eyes to the industry, banking and finance, and that was really confirmed for me that that's something I wanted to do and uh, and be the career choice that I wanted to pursue.
1: And what made you choose to go back to business school and complete your MBA?
2: Um, so I was very fortunate. So when I was at BMO, um, which is where I started my career after my internship, uh, at least at the time, they had a pretty generous program where every couple of years they would uh, sponsor a uh, number of people from across the organization to do your do MBAs uh, while working full time. So, um, the the short answer is, uh, I chose it because BMO uh, paid for it and uh, put me through the program, which was a great deal. Uh, but all kidding aside, it was it was a great experience. I in the back of my mind, I I, I wasn't a great undergrad student, um, and I felt like I wanted to almost a do over in terms of my university career and. The MBA program was a good way to do that. I was a much better student going through that. I did that through Dalhousie over four years while working full time, so it was, a, it was a big life juggling act, and and I, I learned a lot, and actually have some real lifetime friendships that came out of that as well. So um, so really, the decision on the MBA was both part. Um, it was the deal that was offered me, which was a great deal, and uh, and a, and a desire to kind of uh, round out my education.
0: Great. So, w- would you say was benefit for your for your career in general? Great. Uh, So, as you mentioned, you you began your career at BMO, uh, if I'm not mistaken, as a commercial banker, banking analyst, and uh, you rose all the way up to managing director. Can you tell us uh, what that experience was like?
2: Sure. Yeah, so I spent the total of uh, just over 11 years at BMO, and it was was a great experience, like I mentioned. Um, I enjoyed pretty much every part of the bank career, and it it was an awesome way for me to start my career. Uh, I was very fortunate, like I said, to, to have done my MBA while I was there as well. And I think the one thing um, the big banks, especially the Canadian banks, are very good at, um, at, especially at the beginning of your career, is they teach you a lot of good technical skills, process. You're working in a big organization, so just understanding how big companies work. And then also, if you're fortunate enough, you get to be in client-facing roles and learn to deal with customers. And so these are all just good lifelong experiences, regardless of where your career takes you. And I think they're good fundamental building blocks of any career. And so it was great at the bank. I enjoyed it. Uh, like I said, the bank treated me well. I had a great career. Uh, I had some great colleagues and clients, and, and that's probably the part I still miss as is, is those uh, the people side of it.
1: And you later moved to uh, Enbridge as a senior vice president and corporate development officer at Enbridge. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your role and what you do uh, in your current position?
2: Sure. I actually, uh, so today actually, believe it or not, is my 12th anniversary at Enbridge. So uh, I actually moved Congrats. over originally into the, thanks. I, I moved over into the treasury group originally um, when I left the bank. <clears throat> Excuse me. And at the time, I actually didn't know a lot about what treasury is or was and does, but uh, it, it worked out well and and I ended up rising to become the treasurer of the company and then about two years ago took on the role that I'm in today. And so corporate, let me just talk about the role I'm in today as um, Senior VP and Corporate Development Officer. Um, corporate development means different things at different companies. So at a lot of companies, the term gets used interchangeably with uh business development. So you hear the titles and terms that you use kind of interchangeably. So at Enbridge, we have have traditional business development teams. And what I mean by that is these are teams that work with customers to come up with new projects and ideas and get them built. Uh, Whereas corporate development at Enbridge is much more focused on M&A. And that could be at the asset level or it could be corporate transactions. So we do delineate the two, business and corporate development terms. So in my role, I lead a team of Thirty-four professionals in Calgary and Houston um, that are involved in M&A across the company, and just to put that in dimension here, uh, so in 2023, for example, we executed eight different transactions, seven acquisitions, and one divestiture uh, for a total deal value of about 27 billion dollars. So that that is a big busy year by any measure, and so um, it was a it was a very fun year for us, but very busy, and so transactions there range from uh, 100 million dollar acquisition to a $19 billion acquisition, as well as a $3 billion divestiture. So it was really the the entire spectrum of, of M&A things. And so our group uh, is responsible for working with all the different business units at Enbridge to identify and pursue these opportunities. And you know, a lot of that work involves everything from you know, heavy-duty financial analysis and modeling to negotiations with a seller or a buyer to... Basic fundamentals analysis, understanding uh, you know the real business uh, situation. So really, our teams have uh, and need a variety and diversity of skills and experiences to uh, to be able to execute these.
0: Sure. And coming from a banking background, in what ways did your experience as as an MD contribute to your success in your in your current role?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. Like I said uh, earlier, I think the banks are awesome places to definitely start your career. And so things I took away from there that I think make me, or allow me to do my job better now, um, probably two main things, just being around a lot of transactions at the bank, you just learn how to do a deal from start to finish. There's a lot of moving pieces. And if you the only way to learn that is through experience. So I think just getting deal experience no matter what that deal looks, like. it could be lending, could be acquisitions, whatever. Um, deal experience is invaluable. And then the second part, and I can't underemphasize this part, is dealing with customers and dealing with counterparties. Again, it's the type of experience you can't you can't read in a book and learn about this. You need to just do it. And if you've got experience, especially early in your career, dealing with um, counterparties and negotiating things. It, it's very transferable. So when we're negotiating MA and or negotiating a big financing, um, you know, having had that experience dealing with people on the other side goes a long way. So I think that, you know, my, my start of my career at the bank definitely helped, um, helped set me up with those skills that, that have benefited me to this day.
1: And what would you say differentiates a, a role in corporate development at Enbridge, for example, or a specific company, uh, whereas uh, an investment banker in an M and A at an investment bank? You know, how does it d- diverge?
2: You know, in some ways, they're almost mirror opposites of each other, and and I see this a lot when we're working on deals. So you know, we work very closely with investment banks, every bank you can name, and and different banking teams. So when we're looking at a transaction, um you know we are joined at the hip so we work the bankers very closely i think the difference is you know corp dev within a company specific the things you're working on are typically a little more narrowly focused like you're you're really just focused on the lines of business that that company deals with now fortunately at enbridge we have quite a few lines of businesses from oil pipelines to renewables assets to gas utilities to newer energy technology things so we we get to uh, let's say play in a lot of different markets but for a lot of companies, you're more narrowly focused. And so when you're working on M&A, for example, it's a very small, very specified area of focus that you'll, you'll be exposed to. If you're at a bank, um, typically you're going to work on a lot more different variety of transactions, different companies. So you're just going to see and, and do and be exposed to a lot more breadth of uh, of industries and types of transactions. So. You know, it's neither is better or worse than the other. It's it's really what makes sense um, at that point in time in your career.
0: Right. And so you mentioned working with a lot of uh, different investment banks. And how would you say you go about selecting a specific one for a specific deal?
2: Yeah, that's a it's a very good question. One gets asked a lot by banks. <laughs> um so at Enbridge, we're, we're a very large consumer of capital as well. So be doing what we do where you're building big energy infrastructure projects requires a lot of capital. And so by capital, I mean, you know, we, we first start with bank credit and, you know, that backstops our entire funding program into the bond market. So we have a pretty hard rule at Enbridge in terms of banks, which is, you know, I call it pay to play. So if you're a bank and you want to do business with Enbridge, whatever that looks like, you have to show up with some credit. And we have over $20 billion of credit facilities at Enbridge. And so it's that puts us top decile in corporate North America, any Fortune 500 company. So we're among the biggest in the world in terms of how much bank credit we, we consume. So that's a starting point. Any bank that wants to even talk to us about anything else, we'll hear you out as long as you... Provide credit to us, so that's first support. Um, and then, second, you know that that's sort of the price entry. Okay, now that you're a lender to us, um, you know you're you've got a seat at the table. Now we're going to evaluate you on your merit, your credentials, your quality of your ideas. Now it's we're putting the brain power to work. So we want to hear good, innovative ideas. We want to hear um, things that we you know that are creative. At the end of the day, that are good for our company and good for our shareholders, good for our stakeholders. And so, at that point, it becomes very subjective. Like theoretically, any bank can lend us money. That's easy part. Now, the hard work is who can come in with really interesting ideas that are creative, that make sense. And you know, the hardest part of that is that are unique, right? Like we're a big company. A lot of banks cover us. We're in a very well-known sector. We're public, so all the information is out there. The hardest part is coming up with a unique idea that uh, that nobody else is thinking of.
1: Aside from your role at Enbridge, you're also an elected member of the Senate at the University of Calgary. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yeah, sure. so not, notwithstanding that
2: that's a very fancy title, um, you know, as a senator, effectively, I'm an ambassador of the university to various communities. So, for example, if I'm at a networking event, you know, I, I will sometimes wear two hats. Where I'm there as a senior executive of Enbridge, but I'm also there representing the University of Calgary. And the idea there is that uh, you know, as um, you know, a visible business leader that I'm I'm helping spread, um, you know, what's going on at the university in the different communities. So there's a number of senators that are elected from different backgrounds. You know, um, I'm I'm one of a few say corporate types. There's people in not-for-profit and academics, et cetera. And the idea is that you know we're sort of spread out in the various communities, whatever that may be, could be business community, could be uh, cultural communities that you're helping connect the university into that. So that that's largely what Senate is focused on. And I think maybe just if I take this one, this question down another tangent here, um, you know, the big thing for me is it's being involved in your community one way or another is hugely important to me in my career, as as shown that. Um, you know, especially early on, it's really easy just to get focused on your career and then kind of forget about giving back to the community. And, and that's not wrong. Like, you you only have so many hours in the day and you have to dedicate them appropriately. But what I have seen is as you get older, let's say, and more established in your career, people forget that you also have to give back. And, um, you know, it doesn't mean that it's only reserved for like a CEO or someone very wealthy to give back. I think everyone has the, uh, should have at some point in their time the ability to give time and money if possible but at least time and um you know that that's something that i i talk about a lot with people and so you know when i look back i was actually only 24 i think when i first started volunteering as a mentor at the university of calgary and uh, i was about 28 when i became the chair of the board of a not-for-profit i got involved with so it's things like that where you know, you have to find the time but it, you know my my personal view and i very strong conviction on this is that everyone has to give back to the community in some shape or fashion.
0: Mm, definitely really important. And uh, lastly, for the personal segment, uh, I would like to know how's your current work-life balance and how did it change over, over the course of your career?
2: Yeah, this is this is a well-talked-about topic for sure. So, you know, I have a few thoughts on this. So, so work-life balance, I think, sometimes can be a bit of a misnomer. And I, I think a lot of people equate work-life balance is like this 50-50 um, equilibrium. And, you know, that sounds nice and it looks good on paper, but it's an, in reality, especially with bigger jobs and other responsibilities, it, it's just not realistic. In my mind, work-life balance is about having a life outside of work. And so I, I know far too many people that are defined only by what they do for a living. Um, you know, you see it all the time at parties or events where people... When you ask them about themselves all they do is talk about what they do at work and that's what defines them and so your most interesting characteristics should not be what you do for a living there's definitely more to life and so i think you need to have hobbies and outlets and just things that you look forward to when you have downtime and to decompress and and just take a break and so whatever that is you know that that has to be something that's part of your life and so for me for example um You my family and I are avid skiers. Um, So, you know, living in Canada, you better embrace winters or else they can be pretty long. And so we ski almost every weekend. And so that's something I very much look forward to uh, at the end of a week is, you know, spending some time to ski with my family. Now, there are busy weeks, too, and sometimes we can't get to it. But, um, you know, it's having that outlet. So in the summer, same thing. We spend a ton of time mountain biking. And, you know, I try my best, although it's a little harder these days, to maintain a a single-digit golf handicap um but uh you know the point you have to have some outlets you have to have hobbies so really work-life balance isn't about having everything all the time at the same time and i think that's where the confusion lies where i want to be able to have you know 10 hours a day devoted to my pastimes and i want to be able to devote 10 hours a day to work like it doesn't work that way and so i think there has to be a realization that there's, there's gonna be times and it could be months or years where work becomes you know, the priority and, and can be all consuming. But then there's times that come up where you come up for air and you have to have something else uh, to enjoy. And I kind of think of it as waves, or There's peaks and valleys of waves. And so you're going to ride a wave of heavy duty work, but it'll come down. And that during those times, you take advantage of it. And whatever your hobbies or pastimes are, you go all in on that. And I find a lot of people who do nothing but work, and this is kind of 20 plus years of career experience now. It's not everyone, but I've seen a bit of a common theme where you know the the people i've come across who would self identify as workaholics i've seen that it's not always because their job demands that they work 24 hours a day but it's more that they don't know how to do anything else and don't have anything else that really motivates them other than work and so by default you just end up doing what you know how to do and you know that they're almost on on autopilot so you know maybe it's a different answer than you've heard in the past and others might have but To me, work-life balance isn't necessarily this idyllic state of, you know, having every day, having time to do yoga or having time to do sports uh, while, you know, getting everything you need to be done at work. But I think it's about having those different interests that are outside of work. And then when the time comes, you make the most of it. So early in your career, it's going to be tough because your career is going to be dominating. You're going to be lifting pretty heavy to try and establish yourself but i think you just got to be mindful of those peaks and valleys as they come that, that you take full advantage of it and like i said before you know the, the people i think who struggle don't have those outlets don't have those hobbies and so that by default they just you know keep working because that's what they know to
0: that's all they know how to do mm-hmm. yeah you have to make the best out of it especially in a beautiful place uh, as calgary yeah, um, exactly <laughs> so uh, switching on to the market segment uh, how, how would you say the dividend policy of enbridge Impacts the decision making of the of the overall company.
2: So our dividend policy and just the dividend in general is super important. So we have nearly a thirty year history of consistent dividend growth, uh, which is very unique. So for almost thirty years, we've grown the dividend annually, and it's now one of the most, if not the most important factor for investors. You know, wh- you know, when people ask why do you own Enbridge. Um, you know, for retail investors, especially, it's a dividend. And, you know, the amount of people I run into when they find out, you know, I work at Enbridge, especially older people who may be retired. And the first thing, oh, you keep that dividend going, you know, and, and it's very important to people. So everything, you know, we do in terms of business and decision making around how we grow the company, where we invest our capital has to take into account the ability to continue to grow and protect that dividend.
1: Also, in September, Enbridge acquired the trio of U.S. Uh, companies from Dominion Energy for 14 billion in cash and debt. Can you talk about that transaction and what it is expected to add to Enbridge's area of expertise? Sure.
2: Yeah that that was uh, that was an amazing transaction for my team to lead and and took up a good chunk of 2023 as you can imagine with a deal that size. So it was actually the largest M and A transaction involving a Canadian company in 2023. It was the largest. Uh, utility transaction in North America last year. So that was pretty cool to be part of. Um, maybe just to, to give the background really in just you know 30 seconds here. So Dominion Energy, who we bought the assets from in late 2022, they announced a strategy to essentially go become a pure electric player. Um, prior to that, they owned a bit of a diversified mix of assets, a lot of gas assets, LNG, and so what that meant is they would be selling off all of their natural gas related assets. So they sold a few smaller assets, they sold an LNG asset to Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett's company. And um you know these three natural gas utilities in the end represented uh, the biggest part of the portfolio. <coughs> so they they eventually came to market, so they hired investment banks to uh to find buyers and we got a call. You know Enbridge has owned North America's largest natural gas utility, uh, Enbridge Gas Inc, which is based in Toronto for uh, nearly 30 years. So we've got a lot of experience owning and operating big gas utilities. We've long coveted owning more of these. Uh, we like the business, but uh, a couple of things. A, they very rarely come to market. You know, So high quality utilities just they just never get sold. And B, the ones that do come to market usually are very expensive. So notwithstanding, we we like the business. We like to own more. It's just been hard to find ones that were uh, affordable. So in this case, we we hit a bit of a perfect storm, I'd say, where you know this was a large package of assets that really just because of the size probably narrowed down the buyer universe that um, that could have been sold to, and then you compound that with interest rates where they've been in the last year, really affected the ability for let's say financial sponsors to be able to lever them up and finance as aggressively as they had in the past. So that narrowed the amount of bidders out there, and then. Lastly, like I said, there's three different utilities in there. We were always interested in the entire package. And we spent a lot of time assessing the landscape to see, well, is there competition and who would be the natural competition, who would own all three? And we struggled with that. I, you know, just that there wasn't a logical other buyer for all three. And you know, in the end, I think they ended up with bidders for the individual assets. But I we our our one-stop solution for Dominion, where we said, we'll take all three, one counterparty to deal with. Um was uh, was one one over in the end of the, at the end of the day,
1: and would you say your firm capitalized on their motivation to get rid of their natural gas assets? Uh, to that led to lower price for paying for their assets. Yeah, maybe not as
2: directly. Like at the end of the day, in any transaction, there's a buyer and a seller, and in M and, and A, you're always trying to figure out like what is the motivation, who has the leverage. You know they they were they did publicly state that they were wanting to get out of this business, and so they're they're pretty clear. There's no pulling back at that point. So, you know, I think they were uh, they were a pretty highly motivated seller. They'd come to market to say they were going to do this, and once you make a public declaration like that, it's really hard for you to go back, because your 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 shareholders and investors are going to be upset if you decide to change strategy right away. So, you know, all this to say, like we're very happy with the outcome, of course, and once closed we'll have the largest portfolio of natural gas utilities in North America. And, you know, we have a very strong fundamental view on natural gas. Uh, if you followed Enbridge for any amount of time, you'll you'll have heard that. And our belief is natural gas will remain uh, highly critical for communities for a very long time. Like, listen, it's, uh, you know, it's it was minus 40 across most of Western Canada for most of the last week. And I think Eastern Canada is getting hit with some of that now. And you kind of look at the role natural gas utilities play in, especially in Canada and anywhere where it's cold. And it's just, it's, it's very obvious to us that, you know, these are not just nice to have infrastructure assets; these are need to have infrastructure assets, um, just, just to maintain life, um, especially during these, uh, these cold snaps and through the winter.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and earlier, earlier you talked about selecting an investment bank uh, on different factors, um, such as bringing a unique strategy. Yep. And um, if I'm not mistaken, um, Enbridge issued uh, some shares to finance a part of the deal. So what factors influence the choice of the proportion of cash versus debt, um, especially in the kind of rising or high rates environment?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. This is kind of like now a textbook. Corporate finance would be a great case study for for you guys at school. But you know what we're trying to do there is balance a lot of different objectives. Um, we're trying to finance this in a way that maintains our balance sheet strength. So as a big public investment grade company, you want to keep your credit ratings because it affects the cost of debt. And so the mix between equity and debt has to come into play, right? If you put too much leverage on, you're going to risk your credit rating, and you know that has a lot of bad outcomes. So that's one dimension. Um, the other one is more of a kind of technical corporate finance, like what is the weighted average cost of capital? What's the right mix in terms of how much, you know, the cost of the money we have to raise? As, as you know, equity is most expensive and debt is cheaper. Where is the balance point there where, where it makes sense, where you can pay for your acquisition and still create shareholder value? Um, and then lastly, a lot of it is going to be on how much capital can you raise in each of these markets, right? Um, you know, markets are not infinite and there's depth to them, right? You will hit the bottom at some point, or uh, capacity maybe said another way. And so for a big transaction like this, you know, we we truly tested how much capital could be raised. And so, in fact, the $4.6 billion common equity issuance we did to support the deal uh turned out to be the largest equity financing in Canadian history. So we knew it was going to be big and we knew we were going to be testing the bounds and it was great to see. And I think you know, that actually gave us a lot of confidence because when you, when you successfully issue an equity offering that big and got absorbed that quickly into the market, um, well, on one hand, maybe you did it too cheap, uh, but I think we did a good price, but, but I think more, more and more seriously, um, I think the strategic value, like everything I just said, why we liked it. I think the, the street clearly said, yeah, it makes a ton of sense. This is highly strategic. And we agree like natural gas utilities especially if you can get them at a good price these are assets gonna be here for a long time and make a ton of sense so when we think about how we select the banks now um you know our our m a advisors were also the lead m a advisors on the financing so morgan stanley and rbc were our m a advisors and it makes sense here because they've been inside the tent with us They've been part of all of our decision-making, our strategy around it, all the conversations around how we're going to finance this, all the modeling work. So they're the they're most up to speed. So it absolutely makes sense you know, that they also be leading the financing because they're the closest to the story and the logic. And then we brought in basically every bank um, in Canada and every bank that we deal with for the most part. And there's a couple of reasons you do that. One, because we did this as a Canadian bought deal style execution Um, we needed all the horsepower of every Canadian bank to maximize the amount of distribution. So if you're going to try to sell that much stock, you better make sure you've got the right outlets to get that stock into the market. And so all the Canadian banks played a big role in that. And then, as I said uh, earlier on, we're the largest consumer of credit, um, you know, basically in, in most corporate North America, that credit isn't free. Let's be clear. The banks don't give us, don't lend us that money out of the goodness of their heart, um, there's expectations of return on capital, just like when we invest capital, there's a return on it. Lending capital or just credit to investment-grade companies is pretty thin margin business for the banks. And whereas on the exact opposite end of the spectrum, big underwritten equity deals are the highest margin stuff. So this is a way also for us to pay back uh, our entire bank lending group for the for the capital they provide us. So it's, it's a bit of a strategy to pick both best execution to get the best deal done, but also concurrently, um, you know, compensating our lender group, especially for, for the capital they provide us over the years.
1: And while we're on the topic of M&A, given Ambridge's relatively frequent acquisitions, could you elaborate on the strategies employed to effectively integrate both the culture and the assets from these acquisitions into the existing framework so that there is synergy when that acquisition goes through?
2: Yeah, it's uh, this is a this is a timeless, age-old question. So there's an old uh, business cliche. I don't know where it comes from. It might be a, a Harvard business case study. I'm sure, but you know the, the cliche is that culture eats strategy, and that's very very true. Um, so a highly strategic and accretive transaction can come can become a complete nightmare if the cultures don't work. And you know, speaking of Harvard business case studies, there is endless endless amounts of case studies that prove this. So one of the key features or or attributes that we spent a lot of time on assessing is cultural fit. Um, We've done, I would say in the last number of years, two very large M&A transactions, the one with Dominion we talked about. And then back in 2016, we announced the merger with Spectra, which created uh, essentially the the company you see today. And so, you know, we we spent a lot of time assessing this and on the Dominion acquisition, for example, it became pretty apparent to us in all our meetings with management and staff there as we're going through due diligence that there was just an alignment and comfort between the two companies. And, you know, we we spoke their language, uh, so to speak, which is what we heard a lot. And what I mean by that is, you know, we've got 3,000 employees and managers that are going to come over with the businesses once we close. And a lot of them have grown up. Uh, in some cases, they're second, even third generation gas utility employees. And so the fact that we are already a big natural gas utility owner and operator. We know the lingo, we know the business, that's what they mean by we speak the language. So immediately, you know, if you think about culture in the traditional sense and someone speaks your language, let's say you're a foreigner in a different country and you hear someone speaking your language, you immediately have this connection. And then, you know, this is a a very similar analogy there. where I think they felt at ease, we felt at ease that they obviously speak our language too. And so you can imagine the tension when there's M&A out there. When, when you work at a company where they publicly said, we're going to sell your part of the business, there's a lot of tension and stress. And I think, you know, not, not to malign financial buyers, but, you know, I think a lot of employees at companies are not aren't kind of familiar with the capital markets, see a financial buyer with some concern that, you know, this is just going to be a cost-cutting exercise. They're going to chop up the company. And I think when we came in, ultimately, and it was publicly announced, it was us, you know, there's a comfort that you know we're like them, right? We we own and operate gas utilities, and we know the natural gas business, and so there's comfort. So we we spend a lot of time assessing that. Other things beyond um, what I just talked about, we look for commonality and common vision around things like safety, right? And how companies treat their employees, and and how they support their local communities. Those go a long way to talk. You know, to to. Giving a sense of what the company's about culturally. And so a lot of these are not what I would say quantitative measures that you can just, you know, put on a spreadsheet and measure and assess, right? A lot of this comes down to gut feel and judgment. And you, know, you have to spend time with the people. And I think this is where a lot of companies get it wrong, right? And you're in the in the just thirst to get a deal done and you, you know, you focus on the deal terms. But sometimes, you know, I think companies um have a blind spot and forget to look
0: at the cultural match as well hmm, definitely a, a good point thank you for that and before we wrap up our discussion on markets i'd love to explore just one last thing what sure. trends and practices are are you most excited for looking forward to uh, 2024 and, and even beyond
2: so uh at, at the risk of sounding like an old crusty executive <laughs> i actually like the fact that a lot of companies are flipping back to more days in the office than not, and I'll explain why. So I appreciate during the pandemic, the flexibility was needed, it was wanted, and it, it made a ton of sense. Listen, I have a young family too, with all my kids are school age still. I, I absolutely get it. Um, however, I think as time has passed, we've also seen that that comes at a cost. And you've know, I and you've probably read all the things about companies and CEOs you know, and their, their point of view, but also I'll take this from a different perspective. I'll take this from the employee perspective that I don't think gets talked about enough. And I've seen, I think how much employees, not just at our company, but you know, friends who work in different businesses and companies that are maybe more virtual than others. And I just see what they're missing out on. So employees that are, you know, near fully remote or almost, or are fully remote, you miss out on the mentorship, especially early in your career, the leadership exposure, just general camaraderie, um, you know, folks early in their career you're you're typically working on you know very analytical tedious things and I always found those are more enjoyable to be around other people and colleagues while you're working through those things you can chat there's banter um misery loves company sometimes so if you're working long hours on a pretty tough project it's a lot nicer just be around other people like school projects right like you're locked in your dorm room doing it or in a group project group room so Listen, I I value human interactions probably more than most people, to be fair, but being around colleagues, customers, bosses, you name it, I I just find that much more enjoyable and motivating. So I'm hearing and reading that, you know, companies are trending much more this way for 24 and onward. And so that's probably the part I think uh, I'm excited by because I think people will start to realize what they're missing out on.
1: Yeah, that makes total sense. And now moving on to the mentorship se- section, as a senior senior leader yourself, what qualities do you believe are essential for effective leadership in finance? Uh, how can someone develop these qualities, and what have you observed uh, in leadership in general and finance?
2: Sure. So I think most people equate finance as a numbers profession, and although this is true, um, every aspect of finance ultimately involves people and people are the ones who make decisions at the end of the day. So although it's very numbers driven, it's a people business. And what I mean by that is in almost every circumstance, and it doesn't matter whether you work at a bank or you work at Enbridge, there's typically a customer involved or some sort of, um, it could be an internal customer or external customer. There's an investor, There's there's a person involved. And the numbers part of it is interesting, but building relationships and be able to effectively communicate what those numbers mean are probably as important, maybe even more important. So to use an example. Like in my career, I've worked with, you know, I can't even count how many MBA CFAs uh, over the years who are clearly very smart, very good with numbers, very quantitative, but sometimes maybe not the best communicators. And the end result ends up being that, you know, these folks have great ideas and can do really good work, but if you can't communicate and build a relationship to be able to have the trust, be able to communicate your point of view or the, the work you're doing, it, it's almost pointless, right? You can be the smartest person in the room, but if no one's listening to you because you, your communication skills aren't great, that's a waste. So I think that's a highly underrated aspect of career development in general. And I think a lot of young finance professionals rightfully so are focused on the quantitative side. But forget about the uh, the qualitative part here in terms of communication. So if you think about this, you know, early in your career, you're you're just focused on numbers and communicate those numbers. So that's that's probably the right place to focus. But as a leader and as a more senior leader, you get to a level where you don't need to be the subject matter expert anymore you know uh you go to leading a team of technical people to leading a team of people leaders and so what i what i mean by that is um you know there are far more uh corporate finance smart people in my team than i am like there's just endless i have great talent i'm not i'm not the smartest corporate finance person in my group but i don't need to be either right and a role i'm in now it's around what do you bring? I've got those folks, but you know, my job is to, or you know, provide leadership, organize, motivate, and and enable my team uh, to do what they need to do. So, all that to say, I think you know, in terms of what's 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 important in leadership and finance, it, it you know, the point is, if I were to sum it up in a sentence, it goes beyond the numbers; it's the people side of it.
0: And what would be your advice to a student looking for an internship?
2: Any way you can get one um I I got my career started with an internship at BMO um but you know I think it's important to find anything any way into a company you get the exposure like it, it almost doesn't matter like everyone will have their wish list oh I want to be at this company or that company that's fine but any type of exposure is important like you got to remember when you're a university the university is not a trade school right it's not there to prep you for a job It's it's an Institute of Higher Learning so the way you get, you know, this experience, the trade experience, if you will, is actually on on the ground in an office. And so whatever you can get is the right answer. That's the way to get it started.
1: And you mentioned finance being a people's business, you know, in a in typical interview at Enbridge, what is your company looking for for someone applying? What does a typical interview look like?
2: Yeah, given, given this is a more student focused interview here, I'll, I'll kind of I'll probably qualify the answer here to more of the sort of intern or entry level roles. Um, so we, we actually do a couple of things. We do a case study for all of our, actually almost all of our roles, even senior roles. We do a case study that we give to candidates uh, ahead of time and they have to come back, do a little bit of financial modeling work and basically build a business case and pitch it back to us. So what this does is it does also, it does, um, identify like who has the bare minimum technical skills that we would need um but probably just as importantly who can distill a complicated case and clearly articulate it back to us so going back to what I said earlier about communication skills this is really where you sort it out to say you know there's a lot of people who can uh, do a financial analysis on a complicated problem but can they in three minutes or less Tell us what we need to know coming out of it. So that's one aspect, which is it's high stress. I get it, and people, people, you know, take it very seriously, spend a lot of time. And then the second one, more for the student level, and this maybe bit me more personally, but I, I look to see is there more to this candidate and the student other than their grades and their what they do at school? So back to what I started this uh, conversation with: Are you defined by something other than? what you do at school. So are you, what hobbies do you have? Do you Are you on teams? Are you involved in student clubs? You know, are you volunteering in the community? That's all that stuff's big on me, because again, I like well-rounded people that have interests beyond just work.
0: Great. And uh, if you were to go back to university, what advice would you give to your younger self? Hmm.
2: Oh, so much, <laughs> um, you know, in terms of advice, generally, if I were to use the words of uh, Kendrick Lamar, which is uh, be humble. So yeah. I know it sounds strange maybe, but I think too many young grads, especially finance grads, um, come in with big egos. <laughs> and listen, it, you know, as an industry in pretty good investment banking, you know, the whole stereotype of the finance bro and the, you know, big shot investment banker does not help. And And unfortunately, there are a lot of Walking stereotypes that perpetuate this, so it's not without merit. But people have to be realistic and not get caught up in that. Um, You know, if you're a 22 year old new grad and you enter the workforce, whatever that may be, it could be at Enbridge, could be at an investment bank, could be at a county firm, whatever it is. um, At that point in your life, even let's say you had the best grades of your school, you graduated top of class, you had the best internships, sure, great. At the end of the day, you probably have a cumulative of nine to 12 months of work experience total um that's it so it's not a lot of work experience that's the blink of an eye in a career like i like yeah literally blink of an eye so i think it's important for young professionals and i would have given myself this advice too and i certainly um you know had elements of what i'm talking about so it's not without merit here too but you got to come in be smart be curious and be but but be humble you don't know what you don't know and so, you know, the idea here is you're 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 here to learn in those early days and, and and um, you know, I think be respectful of that. Probably the second piece of advice here uh, along the lines of you don't know what you don't know is find a mentor to guide you. Probably this would be the first piece of advice. So early in your career, that could be someone that's slightly more senior to you that can help guide you through the corporate minefield. And I, I go back to my experience in BMO, you know, big Canadian bank I've never really worked in an office I don't know how things work um and luckily I had a few people take me under their wing I didn't recognize at the time that they ended up being mentors to me I didn't even know what a mentor was at the time but they took me under their wing and they helped guide me through you know career advice and here's what I do in this situation it was it was awesome and really set me on the right path and so these people, they don't need to be your friend per se. In fact, they probably shouldn't be because you what you really need is someone who will tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. And so I, I can't overstate the value of mentors. It's it's a big part of my life. I said earlier, like I've been a mentor at the U C here to business students for 20 years now. I'm that old, but uh, I've always had them in my life. And I you know like I said, I, I I love serving as a mentor. It's highly rewarding, highly valuable. But I think it can really help, especially young professionals um make complicated decisions like you're not otherwise equipped to make some of these big life decisions when you get out of school and so it's it's not fair to expect that you just know the answers so i think finding a mentor can go a long way to helping you make that a little bit smoother
1: yeah and to add to what you said about being humble i think i read recently something that that said something along the lines of take what you do seriously but don't take yourself too seriously and i think totally was, uh, what you were totally saying. it.
2: you know um, <laughs> in this profession whether it be at the corporate executive level or big shot investment banker level, you see it all. And there are a lot of folks definitely who fit that bill who take themselves far too seriously. Like you gotta be serious, you gotta be credible, but at the end of the day, we're all human beings and and you know people can sniff out BS when they see it. And so, you know, you're know, you not gonna fool people at a certain level. And so it is, the way you describe it is exactly right.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And now moving on to the rapid fire questions. Sure. What is the best piece of advice that anyone has ever given you? You know, it's this one line
2: I heard. Um, I can't even remember where I got it, but your greatest strength will also be your greatest weakness. And so what that means, and it's so true, is that you will tend to overplay your strengths. Um, it's human nature. And so, but it also can become your blind spot. And so you just have to be aware of it, that you don't always overplay your strength uh, because it can come back and and bite you in the butt.
0: And how would you describe your career in one word? It's
2: technically two words, but it's been a blast.
1: On a scale of one to 10, how important would you say your GPA is as a student?
2: (laughs) So I have to be careful here because I, uh, for full disclosure, I had a solid mid two-handle GPA as an undergrad. (laughs) So I I don't want to overstate this. Uh, It's not maybe that simple an answer, I think as an undergrad coming out of school or looking for those first internships and those first jobs your gpa is actually very important like eight or nine out of ten maybe ten out of ten and the reason for that is as employers it's just an easy screen when we look at you get a hundred applications for one job it's just an easy consistent constant measure that you can screen people out it's it's clearly not I think the correlation between GPA and you know success in your career is pretty weak I'm probably living proof of that but uh it is a way that companies screen so I think as an undergrad for that first job it's highly important that you have a strong GPA because it'll just get you through the screen or at least get you to an interview if you had a GPA like mine coming out of school you would get all of zero interviews which is kind of where I fell into and luckily because I had a good summer internship um you know the bank brought me back um but having said that I think after that, it's not particularly relevant. You know, at that point now, it's your work ethic. It's what you've done in your career and how you've worked that will carry you onward.
1: Mm. So, so, if you
2: stay so strong in school.
0: <laughs> you know, it's yeah, so,
2: sure. It matters until it doesn't.
0: <laughs> and uh, if you wouldn't be in the financial industry, what would you be doing instead?
2: Oh, <laughs> something people-driven like you you probably caught that theme out of here and I've always enjoyed dealing with people so you know cut something customer focused I'm not in this business I'd, I'd be dealing in, in some business where I'm dealing with customers one way or another just dealing with people
1: and what is one book you would recommend to our listeners so I am
2: a very poor non or poor fiction reader like I have no idea what you know top books are like I've never been a good reader of fiction but especially in university, and and like we started, I've always had this um, interest in money and finance and business. And I like I I remember kudos to my parents. You know, my dad had me reading like the business section of a newspaper early on in my life, and how to read a stock chart with his bit ass. So things like that always got my attention. And so if there's one book um, that I'd recommend, it's a no brainer for me, and it's called Barbarians at the Gate. I love business books. I've read all the major ones and more. Barbarians at the Gate is an all-time best, hands down. Um, Skip the movie. It's terrible. Read the book. It's a big, thick book, but it's just the detail they go into about everything and the people. It's extraordinary. And for the finance geeks out there who really get geeked out on M&A and buyouts and Wall Street and all that sexy stuff, this is the best book for it because it just gets into great detail about the heyday of leverage buyouts in the 80s of Wall Street. Um, a lot of the big personalities and characters that have gone on to define the business, like you know, Henry Kravis and KKK, well, all the K, KKNR, you know, Colbert, Kravis, and Roberts, they're all featured prominently in the book. And you get, you get some pretty good insight into how Henry Kravis' career started. They get in a lot of it there. So highly recommend Barbarians at the Gate for anyone who has an interest in uh, in kind of really geeky Wall Street type finance
0: perfect. I'll I'll definitely add it to my list. So, all right. Thank you. Thank you very much for being so generous with your time, Max. We, We really appreciate it. Of course. Yeah. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, feel free to drop a comment or follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or our social medias. Have a good one and see you next time.
1: The sole purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform our listeners it is by no means a substitute for professional guidance by qualified experts. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute financial or other professional advice or services. Instead, we encourage you to discuss your career options, as well as financial undertakings with other professionals who specialize in wealth, securities, and asset management, or any other field in financial services. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only, and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at a personal and individual risk. This podcast should not be considered professional advice. Guests who speak on this podcast express their own opinions, experiences, and conclusions. The views expressed on this platform are personal opinions and only, and should not be construed as financial advice for a given situation or from a given institution. While all attempts are made to present accurate information, it may not be appropriate for specific circumstances, and information may become outdated over time. No firm, nor any company providing financial support endorses or opposes any particular view or tools discussed in this podcast. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. Advertising, which is incorporated into, placed in association with, or targeted towards the content of this podcast is forbidden. This podcast may not be edited, modified, or redistributed. The Corporate Chat Podcast has no liability for any personal activities in connection with this podcast, or for personal use of this podcast in connection with personal websites, computers, or playing devices. Moreover, the Corporate Chat Podcast makes no warranty that this podcast, or the server that makes it available, is free of viruses, worms, or other elements or codes that manifest contaminating or destructive properties. McGill University and our sponsors expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use, of, reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this podcast or the information presented in this podcast.